uh, on the plane, I read a, a draft copy of a new book um, written by another Irish exile in Australia, the guy I mentioned a couple of nights ago, Steve McAlpine. You may have seen his first book being The Bad Guys. Well, his new book um, promises to be every bit as helpful. He, here's what he writes in the introduction. Our culture is constantly changing. Wouldn't it be incredibly helpful if someone from the future came back to help your church figure out how to remain faithful and fruitful within those changes? It would clear your mind if someone were able to tell you some tried and tested strategies for negotiating a Western world that is hostile to the gospel message, a workplace that's devoted to values not aligned with Christian ones, and an online culture that sweeps people up in ways that seem impossible to predict. After all, who knows what's coming down the line and how it will affect Christians? How do we future-proof ourselves? Steve goes on. Because of the death, resurrection, ascension, rule, and imminent return of Jesus, the future of the church is assured. Jesus himself made that claim when he stated that the gates of hell wouldn't stand up to the advance of his church. If the worst of the worst cannot stop the inevitable triumph of Jesus and his church, then nothing lesser can. Yet, of course, he adds, that doesn't mean we just sit back and wait. The discipleship task for those who know that the future is assured then is to do the work of future-proofing the church now. We will not get to the future and be able to shore up non-existent foundations. The time to build communities that will be resilient and strong in the face of perhaps hostile governments is now. The time to grow in a gospel hope that renders us non-anxious and open-hearted in a fearful and shriveled age is now. The time to put aside every weight of individual and collective sin in order to be holy and hopeful in a godless and nihilist era is now. Now, just in case you wondered, I did email Steve and thank him for writing the introduction to this talk for me which I'm not sure is what he had in mind when he sent me the draft of his book. It is a great book, but it does remind us right out of the gate that we are a people of the future, a people whose own future is secure, a people whose existence and life is already a foretaste of a glorious future, a people whose very presence here in the land of Ireland, in this world, is the clear announcement of our God's purposes. We are a people of confident hope in a world where both hope and confidence are increasingly difficult to find. I don't know if it's true in Ireland, but I'm guessing it is. But in Australia, anxiety has become endemic. In 2022, one in five Australians we're suffering from some kind of mental health condition. The CEO of the Australian Psychological Society said, anxiety is sweeping through the country at unprecedented rates across all ages, but especially among children, young people, and women. Anxiety is hanging over us like a pall. 
And the thing is, no one is quite sure why. Now, of course, we have to be a little careful here. You know, there, there is some anxiety that, that all of us face. The natural concerns we all feel for stuff like our health or our kids or the well-being of an aging parent. And there's also the kind of clinical anxiety that Paul has spoken about so movingly, which is a real and horrible thing, and we need to be deeply compassionate from the minority of people who suffer from this. But in the middle, there's some, also something else at play, a more systemic kind of something in the water type of anxiety that is everywhere around us. Tim Keller, who went to be with Christ just a few months ago, writes, the modern self is exceptionally fragile. While having the freedom to define and validate oneself as superficially liberating, it's also exhausting. You and you alone must create and sustain your identity. This has contributed to unprecedented levels of depression and anxiety and never satisfied longings for affirmation. See, we live in a world that despite having more reason to feel comfortable, despite having a greater control of our destiny than any other generation on this planet, is somehow more anxious, which is where we come in. Because the church of the Lord Jesus Christ should be the most non-anxious organization on the planet. Didn't Jesus say, to those in the middle, <laughs> to those who are, who are drinking in this water of our world just now. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Didn't Paul say, rejoice in the Lord always? Again, I'll say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, please hear me. Neither Jesus nor Paul is talking about the kind of clinical, deep struggles that Paul has gone through. But he is talking about the anxiety that is everywhere in our world. Now, I suspect if we were to poll the people of Ireland on what quality they most associate with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, non-anxious wouldn't come out all that high on the list but it should. And the fact that our God dispels and banishes this atmospheric anxiety is so uniquely attractive. We should be the people who don't panic, who don't get angry all the time about the mess of our world, but are the people who are marked by confidence and hope. Because we know how all this ends. We are the people of the future. Now, if there is one book of the Bible which is written for a time such as this, when Christians aren't simply on the outer, but are regarded as backward, dangerous, an evil influence on our world, it's the book of Revelation. But in Revelation 6 and 7, something very unusual happens. 
You know, it's a bit like in, you know, an Indiana Jones movie where someone leans on the wrong rock and mayhem ensues. Except the scary events in Revelation 6 and 7 aren't triggered by someone accidentally leaning in the wrong place. They are triggered by Jesus himself. More specifically, by Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, everywhere else I can think of in the New Testament, Jesus' death and resurrection leads to good stuff happening. We get life and forgiveness and peace and joy and reconciliation. But what happens here? Well, the Apostle John sees that Jesus' resurrection unlocks all kinds of unexpected events, and not all of them are apparently good. See, in chapter 5, John has just watched as the risen lamb who was slain has cracked open the seals which unlock the next phase of world history. But what happens next is a mixed bag. The victory won by the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't appear to instantly introduce an era in which everything is wonderful for God's people. In fact, the very opposite appears to be the case. Now, that may come as a little bit of a surprise to us, but I don't think it sounded all that odd to the Christians in Asia Minor in the first century to whom this book was first sent. They're coming under immense pressure to compromise, economic pressure, social, social pressure, the threat of force kind of pressure to join in with everybody else in bowing down to the Roman emperor who by this stage had decided he was actually God. Life was hard. The world was anti-gospel. But God in his kindness gives them and us this book to enable God's people to live as people of hope whose confidence is lodged firmly in the future, come what may. In chapter 6, John sees four key facts played out in front of his eyes. In the most vivid terms possible, he tells us either the first six scrolls in the, uh, the first six seals on the scroll of history are opened by Jesus' death and resurrection. They're not actually all that complicated. The first one shows that Christ is sovereign over every event in history. See, if we're going to get what's going on in these chapters, we do have to pick up right at the start that everything that happens in Revelation 6 and 7 happens not only with Christ's permission, but actually at his command. Four strange horses, for example, are sent out of their satanic stables by Jesus Christ himself, who commands living creatures to pass on his instructions. This is 6 verse 1. I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there was a white horse. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Another horse went out. Fiery chestnut one. Uh, verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. Black horse. When he opened the fourth, se fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come, and I looked and there was a pale horse. See, the four living creatures who do the speaking represent all of creation. They've already bowed down before Jesus in the book of Revelation. They are under his control. They do his bidding, and now they command these horses to come out. 
So whatever they stand for, they are called into action by Jesus when he dies. They're sent out by his command. This is a picture of the absolute sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Now, we'll come to the horses and riders in a second, but it's pretty clear they're not the ideal house guests. They bring war and persecution and famine and death. And yet John wants us to get that they are under the control of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus retains jurisdiction over everything that happens in this book. That's the bedrock of our hope. That's why we can sleep at night. Being a Christian may be deeply unpopular, but Christ is absolutely in control. You may lose your job for quietly and gently declining to affirm the values of your employer, but Christ is absolutely in control. Your business may go to the wall because you won't sacrifice to the emperor, but Christ is absolutely in control. Your friends may rot in a Roman jail. Any biblical foundation of the laws of your nation may be systematically undermined, but Christ is absolutely in control. Because of that, we don't need to panic. We don't even need to become angry because our future is still secure. Now, this evening, there's more to say than this, but there is definitely not less. Whatever the government does, whatever society thinks, whatever we're going through, whatever we're struggling with, whatever stupid things we may have done in the past and may do in the future, whatever the state of our hearts, whatever the state of our life, whatever the state of our church, Jesus Christ is absolutely and utterly in control. Do you believe that? You really should, you know because it's true. Now, you may be sitting quietly saying, that's all very well, but what on earth is Christ doing if he's still sovereign? And my life, our lives are like this. Well, that's where the horses and riders come in, because this vision makes it clear that Christ uses even suffering to purify and to punish. What's Jesus doing in our world right now? He's doing exactly what he's been doing since his death and resurrection changed, changed everything. He's doing the same thing that he's been doing since the first seal was broken. He has been using suffering to purify people and to punish people. That's the message of the horsemen. Now, remember, these variously colored horses make their first appearance in Zechariah. Now, just a note on the colors. Have you ever read, the, read these the, these? Uh, details of the horses and go, what on earth is a fiery red horse? Has anybody ever seen a pale green horse? Well, if you go back to Zechariah, it's just struggling to translate. These are horse-colored horses, okay? The weird colors are not the point, okay? <laughs> just colors are hard to translate from other languages, okay? But the issue with these horses is they do a very specific job. They take the four classic covenantal judgments to every part of the earth. War, persecution, famine, death. These occur in passage after passage of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, take your pick. After Jesus' death and resurrection, they're unleashed. 
everybody suffers. And at one level, it doesn't matter whether we're Christians or not, we all experience the same kind of stuff. Kind of makes sense. When there's a war, Christians die as well as those who aren't Christians. When a famine hits, Christians go hungry too. We share in the suffering of this world. We get sick, we get old, we die too. But that isn't the whole story. As John's already made clear in Revelation, at times Christians are on the sharp end of extra suffering purely because we are Christians. The slaying language of verse 4 is always used of Christians who are killed in John's letters. And it seems that these people are the ones singing in verse 9. And why does that matter? It matters because it helps us to see that, that the Lord Jesus Christ uses some of the same things to achieve different purposes. Both Christians and non-Christians suffer, but those of us who belong to Christ and at times get that extra portion of specifically Christian suffering, we experience that so that we might be purified. While terrifyingly, those who are not Christians experience suffering as a foretaste of judgment. See, through his death and resurrection, Jesus made even the forces of evil his servants in both salvation and judgment. Now, what does that mean? Well, we've already heard that hint of that in our interview this evening. As the people of God, right now, we can be convinced that whatever happens to us is ultimately designed to purify us and is happening under the hugely reassuring umbrella of the sovereignty of Christ. Does it feel like that? Often not. But that is what Christ says he is doing. That's why ultimately we mustn't despair even though we walk through the darkest of valleys. Because the gospel still says to us that somehow all this is not wasted but is being gathered up in the sovereignty of Christ to make us more like Him. That's why we mustn't give up and keep going one step at a time, one day at a time. Few Christians down the years have seen this with such clarity as John Bunyan, author of the Pilgrim's Progress, and a marvelous Baptist, okay? I'll leave you to decide whether he's in a large number or a small number, but you know. John Bunyan had a pretty rough life. His mother and sister died almost simultaneously when he was a young teenager. His father remarried almost immediately. He was drafted into the army straight after his first child was born blind. He was plunged into spiritual depression and darkness for much of the early years of his marriage. Then his first wife died, leaving him with four small children at just about the time he was sent to jail on a point of religious principle for 12 years. He's got a right to talk about suffering. Here's what he says. The key to suffering rightly is to see in all things the hand of a merciful and good and sovereign God and to live upon God that is invisible. 
There is more of God to be had in times of suffering than any other time. There is that of God to be seen in such a day as cannot be seen in another. His power in holding up some, his wrath in leaving of others, his making of shrubs to stand, his suffering of cedars to fall, his infatuating of the counsels of men, and his making of the devil to outwit himself, his giving of his presence to his people, his leaving of his foes in the dark, his discovering, disclosing the uprightness of the hearts of his people, and laying open the hypocrisy of others is a working of spiritual wonders in the day of his wrath and of the whirlwind in store. Bunyan says, we are prone to overshoot in the days that are calm and to think ourselves far higher and more strong than we find we be when the trying day is upon us. But we could not live without such turnings of the hand of God. We should be overgrown if we had not our winters. Bunyan knew that Christ uses suffering to purify us. He finishes that passage by saying, Take therefore what comes to you from God thankfully. Because the Lord Jesus uses suffering to purify his people and to warn his enemies. Which is why John goes to great lengths to describe what he sees as Christ then declares his people pure and not guilty in the end. The four horsemen, it seems, are released simultaneously to wreak havoc on the earth. And while that's going on, Jesus opens the fifth seat. 6 verse 9, I saw under the altar then, that's the incense altar used in the Day of Atonement, the souls of those who've been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony to Christ they'd given. And they cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? They were each given a white robe, must have been a bathrobe, presumably they were staying in a hotel, you know. <laughs> and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. Now these could be literal martyrs, or this group could just be all the faithful people who suffer in Jesus' steps. But either way, they ask God a very reasonable question. How long are you going to let this go without stepping in? Surely you'll intervene to defend our reputation. And they don't get a straight answer. But they get the assurance that Christ has finished his work in their lives so they can relax. Slip into their bathrobe. They are now pure. Now, they're not given a white robe for, as a reward for keeping going. But because they've made it to the end, they get to wear the white robe of Jesus' own righteousness. As those who were bought by the death of Christ and have now been purified, God's work has, in their lives has reached its completion. And the great news is, that's our future. There is ultimately no need for us to be discouraged or despondent or disappointed or downhearted because in Christ our ultimate future is secure. This will be us. 
Because the sovereign Lord who uses all things to achieve his purposes is at work in the brokenness of this world to bring us to this point. And just in case you're worried, he will act against his enemies. After describing what life will be like for some considerable time after Jesus' death and resurrection, John starts to talk about the end of all things in classic Old Testament terms. Then I saw him open the sixth seal. Violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black. The entire moon became like blood. Stars of heaven fell. Verse 15, the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. They said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb because the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? I think just about the silliest thing I ever hear people say is that they don't like the God of the Old Testament because He's a God of wrath. For me, these words are just the most chilling words in the whole Bible. Fall on us, rocks, and hide us because the great day of their wrath has come, and who will stand? How unspeakably awful the wrath of the Lamb and the Ancient of Days will be. I don't think any of us have ever really glimpsed pure anger, white-hot, righteous anger in response to heinous evil. It's hard even to imagine. I'm not even sure that any analogies are really much use in helping us. And yet, one day, this holy wrath will be unleashed against everyone who rebels against the God of all goodness, against those who reject the one who has died for them. One day, Christ will act. See, in this chapter, all of human history is rolled out before our eyes. Jesus' death and resurrection triggers the beginning of the end. But it starts an era where he is absolutely in control, but boy, is life hard and broken and painful. And the risen Christ says to us, take heart. Nothing of this will be wasted because I will sweep it all up to make you like me. No, at one level, this is not the most attractive part of the Bible. Nor is this the first place I would want to take someone who's not yet a Christian. But we cannot avoid this or water it down or attempt to hide it. Because this is the future. The wrath of God poured out in judgment is the darkest backdrop against which the blazing light of chapter 7 shines out where we glimpse our future selves. For the last piece of the puzzle of these chapters makes it unmissable that we will worship Christ in a new creation forever. It must have been slightly confusing for John because the next stage of his vision takes him back to the time just before the scenes are open and the horse is set free. 
After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called out in a loud voice to four angels who be given power to harm earth and sea, saying, hold on, don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the seal, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Back in Zechariah 6, where we meet, first meet the four apocalyptic courses, they go out to the four corners of the earth and four winds blow. Here, the, earth is the winds are restrained for a moment. We hit the rewind button to just before all the bad stuff starts to happen, and we see God acting to enable people like us to cope in a world of war, persecution, and famine, and death, and depression, and cancer, and, and, and. We see God future-proof the church. We are sealed as the 144,000. Two big questions. What does it mean to be sealed? Who are the 144,000? Let me just cut straight to the chase and tell you what I think it is. The image of being sealed is taken from Ezekiel 9. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. He called to a man clothed in linen who had a writing case in his waist. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. In the same way that the people who belong to the beast will get a mark on their heads later on the book, here Everybody who belongs to Jesus gets one. It's our ultimate protection from losing our faith, from losing our way. It's a mark of authentication, ownership, protection. You're safe. You're sealed. Once we bear this mark, which we all get when we trust Jesus, we have a guarantee that no matter what suffering we go through, it can only ultimately do us good, not destroy us. And it's not because we're strong because we aren't. It's because we're His. This is the theological foundation of the biblical notion of the perseverance of the saints. Real Christians keep going because we are sealed. We bear the name of servants of the living God on our forehead. Our God will not let us go. But it's not just an individual thing. We're sealed as part of the 144,000. Now, in the Old Testament, every time Israel is counted for good or ill, it's got something to do with fighting. They're on the march. If you want to read Numbers 1, you'll see it there. It makes it clear. Now, here, given the fact that persecution and war and death is about to be unleashed on us, and the, the word multitude in verse 9 can perfectly reasonably be translated as army. It seems that to be part of the 144,000 means to be part of the army of the Lamb. Modeled on the 12 tribes of Israel in the opening chapters of Numbers, we are lined up and sent into battle. Now, this army is a bit unconventional. For a start, verse 9, it's drawn from every nation, from all tribes and languages. A great multitude or army that no one could number. 
standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hand. It's all, this army is made up of everyone who belongs to Christ. It's the ultimate Israel, picking up on the promise to Abraham in Genesis 22. But the really remarkable thing is how this international army fights. Now, Revelation has already made it clear that conquering and suffering go together when we follow after Jesus. Now we discover that this end-time army of which we're a part actually fights by praising God, suffering for God, and delighting in God. In verse 9, the only weapons that this army actually gets are palm branches. You know, since, uh, since moving to Queensland, like, I've become an expert in palm branches because they fall off our palm trees all the time and I have to go and pick them up and put them in the bin. They're really annoying things, palm branches. You know? But you have to stuff them in your bin in this part of the world, and you know, part of the world where I live. But they are not good for anything. Like... You can't fight. They're just floppy. <laughs> it seems that God's army here is to be more intent on celebrating some kind of eschatological feast of tabernacles, which is all about celebrating God's rescue and His goodness and His salvation than beating anyone up. The battle cry of this army is what? Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. So this sealed, multitudinous army raves about God's rescue and about His authority. And this blast of praise from them leads the angels in verse 11 to join with a doubly emphatic amen as they say, yes, blessing and glory and honor and power might be to our God forever and ever. John's then given a quick test on who these people are. 7.13, when one of the elders addressed me, saying, who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And John appears to hedge his bets. Sir, you know. <laughs> and he said, these are the ones coming out of the great, great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What's the great tribulation? Well, according to Daniel 11 and 12, the great tribulation is what happens after the Son of Man shows up. It's what happens, as in chapter 6, after Jesus' death and resurrection. It is what we're going through now. And as you'll see in the book of Revelation, it may get worse as time goes on, but it's already kicked off. Who are these people? It's us. Those who've been sealed, who are part of the army of God, what do we get to do? We get to follow Jesus into suffering and out the other side. We get to follow Jesus through compromise and the pressure to, to fall into idolatry. And as we fight with our very scary palm branches, we get purified along the way. We get to keep going. This is how we fight. We fight by suffering and persevering and praising our King as we go until we reach the point where it is unbroken worship all the way. You know, in Exodus 19, we read these words. 
When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits. Take care not to go up the mountain, touch the edge of it. Whoever touches it shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. People in Revelation 7 are those who've gone through a new exodus, who've been rescued by Jesus' death, who've been introduced to a new covenant, who've lived faithfully for the Lord Jesus and are now in His presence, enjoying Him forever. 7.15, Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. These promises were all anticipated in the Old Testament. Now we get to enjoy them forever. We get to serve God forever in the ultimate temple. We get to enjoy God forever as those who've been made kings and priests. We get to to sing. We get to be satisfied. And we get to taste a little bit of it now. See, one day we will enjoy life forever on the other side of a new and ultimate exodus. And that is our hope. See, the details of this picture may be a little strange, but it's not all that complicated. Christ is utterly sovereign. He will use suffering to purify and punish. One day he will declare us pure and he will crush his enemies. And in the meantime, what do we get to do? We get to sing as we suffer. We get to delight in the middle of pain and brokenness, knowing we've been sealed as we are part of this army who fights in Jesus' footsteps. And we just keep going. Keeping going is a much underrated virtue. One of the lovely things for me is being back among, among old friends. I think I've probably, I think I know Trevor longer than, um, or Jonathan Ray longer than anyone else in here. I met him when he was a teenager. I think he may have heard just about the first sermon I ever preached. He's been in recovery ever since. (laughs) But it's just great to see Johnny because he's keeping going. Adam Jones, Dara, a whole bunch of you that we've known known for years. It's such a delight to see you and to see that you're still following Jesus. Because that's ultimately what it's about. Because this is the world that we're called to live in. I once read a book by a journalist who spent much of his time visiting the persecuted church. And and in it, he describes an encounter with several aging Chinese church leaders. As he got up to leave them, he said, I'm so thankful I'm not going back to a land 
where Mao reigns. He says, I feel guilty about it that I don't have to pay such a price to bring revival to my country. He said to these suffering church leaders, it's like you've been living through the pages of the book of Revelation. A man called Teacher Cheng licked his lips. The journalist said, I could see a lecture was coming. <laughs> he says, take this back from us to your church. Everyone is living in the book of Revelation because we are all part of the persecuted church. Wherever you go on earth, you will be seduced by false prophets or, co or coerced by a beast into worshiping some idol that is not God. The only difference between you and us is that here it happened so brutally that we saw it clearly. Where you live, it happens so subtly you can hardly see it at all. But everyone is living in the book of Revelation. See, this is our world. This is our present and our future. And this is who we are. And this is where we're going. Do you realize that what we've experienced here at Kinfar is a real foretaste of the heavenly assembly, the church in all its glory that is described here? Kinfar's been a very precious time. But you know, it's not actually the real deal. <laughs> Do you realize that every time we get together, whether it's in Malahide or Middleton or Monaghan or Monkstown or Mount Melek or Machrafelt, it's an anticipation of the gathering in Revelation 7. You know that when you're next together in your local church, wherever it is, as you get together as God's people, as you look back to what Christ has done in his death and resurrection, as we remind ourselves that right now we're enjoying life with him as the people of the word and spirit. And as we look forward to the day when he will restore all things, we get a little glimpse as we look around at our brothers and sisters, as we sing together and pray, and as we hear the voice of the living God, that our God will restore all things and that we will sing to him forever. C.S. Lewis captured the temptation to underestimate the significance of the church as we rock up week by week quite brilliantly in the Screwtape letters. Here's what Screwtape, the, the senior devil, writes to his nephew. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Don't misunderstand me. I don't mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it's usually quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is a selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on these neighbors. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people the next row contains. You may know them to be great warriors on the enemy's side. No matter, your patient is a fool. Provided that any of these neighbors sing out of tune or of shoes that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, 
the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must somehow be ridiculous. Keep everything hazy in his mind just now and you'll have all eternity to amuse yourself by producing in him the peculiar kind of clarity about the church which hell affords. Brothers and sisters, let's not lose sight of what the church is and how much it matters. For we are the people of the Word. We are the people of the Spirit. And as those who are sealed, who make up the 144,000 strong army of God, for those who suffer now and will sing forever, we are the people of the future. The people whom God has called to hold out hope in this broken and hopeless world. May our God give us the grace to be who we are for the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that this evening, by your Spirit working in us, you might give us the faith to believe what you have said to us. That we are these people, people drawn from every part of this island, people drawn from across this world, people who have been sealed and gathered up into this great army that fights by speaking and living the gospel and loving those in front of us and persevering in our weakness and the strength that you supply. Lord, we are nothing, but you are everything. So enable us, even this evening, to recommit ourselves to our Lord and King, that we might bring honor and glory to Him, that we might keep clinging to Him, even in the darkest days, that we might enjoy life with You forever. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.